Welcome to Part of the Family from South Charleston First Church of the Nazarene in South Charleston, West Virginia. I'm Paul Neal, one of the staff pastors here at SC First. In today's episode, we'll share the message from our Easter Sunday morning service on April 17th, then Greg Beheller and I will take a few more minutes to dig even deeper into the message. Just by listening in, even if you've never joined us in person, well, you're part of the family too. This past Sunday, Pastor Kent Estep's Easter message was titled, Jesus, the Resurrection and the Life. If you've already listened to the sermon, you can skip forward about 39 minutes for the discussion. Now, without further ado, let's listen to Pastor Kent's message. We welcome you today, so uh, thrilled that you've uh, joined us for worship today. We do this every Sunday. We love it. Every Sunday. We're glad that you're here today. We are. We're thrilled. I don't know what story you came expecting on this Easter Sunday morning, but I've got some idea, right? I, you know, you, you come expecting a certain story on Easter Sunday morning. My guess is you came anticipating hearing how the angels spoke the words of peace to the first women who gathered at the tomb. Don't be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead just as he said that would happen, Matthew 28. Or possibly you thought that you would hear the story of Peter and John who went running to the tomb only to find that the only thing left were Jesus' burial wrappings, his linens that were there. The body was gone. They didn't yet understand that Jesus would in fact rise from the dead, John 20. Or maybe you assumed you'd hear the story from the perspective of Mary Magdalene as she stood crying outside the tomb when she was met by Jesus personally in the midst of what she deemed as loss, and Jesus spoke her name again. But in each and every case, it's the Easter story, right? It's the sermon about Jesus' resurrection for sure, none other. That's got to be the topic on Easter Sunday morning. That's the main event. That's the breaking news. That's what's in the spotlight, and it has to be. But this morning, I want to preach to you about resurrection's opening act, not the story of Jesus' resurrection, which is typically the headliner on Easter Sunday morning, the opening act. It's just true, right? Most people don't care too much about the opening act. In our day, when we refer to opening acts, it's in reference to the music industry generally. That lingo began around the 1960s, and at that time, these were referred to as package shows, essentially many music festivals, if you will, where they gathered artists of similar genres of music and similar sounds, and they put them on one bill, hoping to uh, gather a larger audience. Over time... That's uh, continued and has resulted in some great and what have turned out to be some very surprising opening acts in history. With time, we can look back at some of those opening acts and some of them have become bigger than we ever imagined. They have now become headliners themselves. Let me share a couple of those examples. It was in the summer of 1963 that the Beatles opened for Roy Orbison. Some in our crowd today probably don't know who the Beatles are or who Roy Orbison is for sure. By the end of that tour, you can guess the Beatles were closing the show. They were co-headliners. In 1970, it was Elton John. He received second billing to Derek and the Dominoes. Yet in his career, Elton John sold 300 million records and had 58 Billboard Top 40 hits. The Dominoes released one studio album in their illustrious career. In 2008, it was Taylor Swift opening for Rascal Flatts. In 1991, it was Garth Brooks opening for the Judds. And in 1967, not 67, but 67, (laughs) if anyone didn't catch that, I just wanted to make sure I get, get it out there. Preacher, did you know you said 67? Yes, I did. That was my Joe Biden moment, sorry. (laughs) Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Believe it or not, believe it or not, Jimi Hendrix, back to 1967. Let's quickly go back there. 67, Jimi Hendrix opened for the monkeys. That's what happened. These opening acts, I mean, some of them ended up being pretty good, right? Better than anybody could have ever imagined or expected. This new artist on the scene was surprisingly talented. The undercard outperformed. And I hope that's the way you kind of feel about this morning's message when you leave, this message from John chapter 11. 
Now, it's not better than Jesus' resurrection. How could you ever top that? I mean, so I can't do that this morning. But it is resurrection's opening act. It's the story of another resurrection. It's the story of Lazarus. It's the story that really sets the table, that foreshadows the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. And today I want to bring that story to center stage, into the limelight, as the main event. We're going to read a long passage of Scripture today, John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. But I want you to get the whole context of this story, beginning at verse 1. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. Then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he is sleeping, he will soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. And so he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I've always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher is here and wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus's grave to weep, so they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. And they told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. It was a cave with a stone rolled, rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they may believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, 
unwrap him and let him go. Wow, what a, what a great story, an opening act to this resurrection of Jesus himself. Over the past several weeks, we in this congregation have been talking about the different names of Jesus. And in this particular passage of Scripture, as he was talking to Martha, Jesus self-identifies. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Those are powerful words, and I think they are needed words today because in this scene into which Jesus walks, death is, is center stage. Jesus arrives in Bethany, and death is thick, mourning is loud, the grieving is intense, and by the time that Jesus gets on this scene, Lazarus has already been dead for four days. Now, the significance of that, we might read it, it might go right over top of our heads, but in this particular day and time, it was ancient, common belief that when a dead person died, the spirit of that dead person remained with them for about three days. But by the fourth day, that spirit was long departed. And so, as John is writing, he's bringing that point to light because he's wanting to tell them, and he's wanting to make sure that we understand that Lazarus is literally dead. He is dead, 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 dead. He is gone. He's dead. He's not around. He's gone. He's dead. Really, really dead. But also, I think John wants us also to see that there are other people who are dead as well. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to address and bring life to a few others that are just as dead as Lazarus was, that he might make them just as alive as Lazarus became. Jesus arrives on this scene, and there is this intersection of death and life. It's where he lived, but can I tell you, it's also where we live. Among those who are dead, still searching for answers and still longing for hope. Sometimes that becomes most apparent to us in the crises moments of life. When life results in something so negative that you never could have imagined it. When you're confronted with a situation that immediately throws you into stress and shock. And when you're hit in the face with a reality that is your worst nightmare. And that's exactly what happens in this story. Verse 1 tells us that a man named Lazarus was sick. And as soon as we read that, we, we, we find out that this was a serious, life-threatening, life-taking situation. It was a significant illness. It was terrible. It was frightening. It was bad news in the middle of what was a good life. I was talking to a pastor friend the other day, and he was talking about some very difficult news that he had received personally. It had to do with some ongoing issues in the life of his family and a lot of angst and questions and restlessness that had surfaced as a result of all of that. And he said to me, he said, our lives, my life had been so perfect until this happened. And on this Easter Sunday morning, while we're in celebration mode, some clearly aren't. Their good life has been overcome by bad news. And they're coming to Jesus even in this moment with their hearts broken. And they're crying out to him, Lord, Lord, the one you love, the one we love is sick. Your bad news may be very much like what Mary and Martha experienced. You're, you went to your follow-up visit at your doctor's office and thought it would be routine. And it wasn't. He or she informed you that your cancer is back. You received the news that though you were assured that the staff cuts and the reorganization wouldn't affect your employment, it has, and now you're searching for a job. You've received the news that though you were assured that, that the one that you were helping in addiction, the one that you were assisting, this friend that you had made with Jerry, that you were coming alongside him and that you could trust him finally. You believed that was all the case, but it turns out you couldn't. He stole your credit card and he has relapsed. And all of this, all of these things, they seem like such bad news and it seems like it's leading to death, the end of a physical life, the end of a career, the end of a relationship. But it's into all of this, into the circumstances of life that we hear the voice of Jesus Christ who says, Lazarus's sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from all of this. 
That's why Jesus came, to reverse these things, to resurrect them. And so into all of these things that we would hope never would happen, that we don't desire, that we don't understand, those things that bring us fear and anxiety and sleepless nights, Jesus says through even that, even in these worst things, I can resurrect them for the glory of the Father. It is the bad news of death that overlays the entirety of this story. But again, it's not just Lazarus' death that we're to see. He's not the only one who is dead. He, he is among the, the walking dead. And that includes some other people in this story, Thomas and Mary and Martha, and quite possibly you and me. And Jesus comes to each and every one of us, whatever our circumstance of life, and he says, I can resurrect all dead things. I can resurrect all dead things and I will. And so I ask you a question. How might you be dying on the inside today? In what ways may your life be declared dead? What needs to be resurrected in you? One of the first people that we meet in this story is the person Thomas. We, we know him as one of the disciples. And Thomas, I would say to you, is dead in his doubt. He is dead in his doubt. That's exactly how we know Thomas, right? Through the years. Th this passage of Scripture, I read it quickly, I know. But it, it attempted to give Thomas another nickname. It referred to him as the twin. But the nickname that has stuck through with Thomas through all history has been the nickname of Doubter, right? Doubting Thomas. And many of us were introduced to Thomas phobia, the fear of doubting, early in life, especially if you were raised in the church. And honestly, some of that teaching went too far. All doubting was placed in one bucket. All of it was equalized and treated with the same judgment. And all of it was always wrong. If you were doubting, you were wrong. It, the message was clear over and over again from flannel graphs all the way through. Some of you have no idea what I just said. Flannel graphs. Old Sunday school thing. Felt people. Anyway, not worth telling you about. But the message was clear <laughs> over and over again. Don't be like Thomas. Don't doubt. And as a result of that, listen what's happened. As a result of that, honest, seeking, searching questions were stifled and silenced. It was like the church was afraid of questions. You could never have any questions. Could I tell you, doubting, asking questions, seeking reason for belief, weighing the evidence isn't necessarily bad. In fact, I would argue with you this morning that I believe it's a necessary ingredient of faith. We doubt or believe, we make judgments about the functionality, the performance of things that surround us each and every day, multiple times a day. None of us exercise what is referred to many times as a blind faith. None of us do that. None of us do that. You're seated in the sanctuary today. Think for a moment about how thoroughly you investigated the stability of your chair before you sat down. It's true that none of you ran an analysis on the load-bearing capacity before being seated. But nor did you have blind faith in that chair. Some of you are saying, oh, yes, I did. No, you didn't. No, instinctively, naturally, you looked at the chair and assessed its condition. You may even be accustomed to being seated in the same chair week after week, and so you know it's good. Many of you looked around the room as you were taking your seat, and you noticed that everyone around you was being seated safely. And all of those things led to you trusting in your chair this morning. It came naturally, instinctively to you. Now, had you been in the first cafe several months ago, your doubts may have been a little bit elevated. Let me tell you a story. Our brother, Paul Faulkner, he, he's on our welcoming team. And because he was doing his greeting duties that morning, he was here early. And there were just a few folks gathered in the first cafe, and he was unlucky enough to select a bad stool. And when he took a seat, it went to the ground, and Paul with him. And so all of that happened, and, and you can bet the next time that Paul was selecting a stool or a chair, he took an extra look first before he sat down again. He, why had he done that? Because he had experienced a fall, and that caused him to question his faith, and so he, he looked at that next chair in which he would take a seat. Now that analogy, I know it's not perfect in that the object of our faith is so much more secure and greater than a chair. He is the Christ, and so he is completely perfect and unfailing. 
But even yet, I want to try to convince you this morning that God doesn't ask any of us for blind faith even when it comes to Him. He doesn't ask us for blind faith. Rather, it is a faith grounded in His trustworthiness, in the assurance of His promises kept, and in the belief that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek after Him. What I believe is that God gives us reason to believe. He brings us to the tipping point of faith. And I think we see this all through Scripture. We read about it in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, it, 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 it's talked about there about Sarah's faith in God. So Old Testament Sarah, the old woman who couldn't have a child, and she was promised a child at, at 75 years of age or something like that. And finally, God brought that to bear. He, she bore a child. It was a miracle. But the question is, why did she come to that place of faith? Why could, why could she believe upon God? Well, she considered him faithful who had given the promise. And why did she know that he would be faithful to the promise? Because he had already proven that in her life. She had experienced God's faithfulness. He had revealed, you remember, they had been called out of, out of their home country to a place that God would show them. And so she had experienced the fullness of God that he had kept that promise he was blessing them abundantly. He was guiding them into that new land so she could believe based on her experience with God. In Exodus 4, 1 and 9, the Lord gives Moses some miraculous signs to perform before the Israelites and before Pharaoh. And why did God ask Moses to do that? Verse 9 tells us, so that they may believe. So in other words, what is God doing? He's giving the, the Pharaoh and he's giving the Israelites reason to believe. I am true. I am faithful. I am good. I am capable. I am the powerful God. In Mark 2, Jesus heals the paralytic before the people and answers the why question. Why did he do it? Verse 10, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so I'm simply making the point. That in every circumstance, God understands our questions and our doubts, and He has given and continues to give us reason to believe. He gives us clues that point us in the direction of faith. And so I'm simply saying this, an engaged doubt, an engaged doubt that sends us on a continued search for God and truth is a great thing. The church, I, God, doesn't fear any question that you bring to Him. Could I say it that way? He doesn't fear one question that you bring to him, as long as it's a sincere question. And as you seek after God, God says, I will meet you there. Those who seek after God will find him. On the other hand, that's an engaged doubt. That's a good thing. On the other hand, there is a determined doubt that is fixed and settled and unalterable, and that is the worst of things. In this particular text, Thomas says to the other disciples in response to Jesus, Jesus saying that we're going to go back to Judea, he said, let's go to that we may die with him. Let's go to that we may die with him. Now, scholars have read that, and they've interpreted that particular passage two very different ways. Some have suggested that that demonstrates profound faith on Thomas's part, that I'm going to be willing to walk with you no matter what it costs me, even if it costs me my life. On the other hand, some have read that, and they have continued that that is a statement of hopeless doubt. I can't say for sure where Thomas was 100% of the time, which camp he was in. What I know is this. What I know is this. It is possible to become overcome by doubt, where darkness prevails and pessimism destroys. And that may very well be the place where Thomas was. I believe Eugene Peterson thought so. He is the writer, the translator of the message. He leans that way, and he conveys Thomas's statement very bluntly. He said, Thomas said this, that we might as well die with him. We might as well die with him. In other words, we have nothing to live for. There's nothing to hope in. It's all over now anyway. And so this is the end. That is an expression of determined doubt with undertones of a defeated resignation, a pessimistic fatalism, a predetermined hopelessness. In my mind, it's a picture of one who is throwing their hands up in the air, not calling out to God in prayer. They're given, they've given up. He's quit. He's hopeless. He's faithless. We might as well just go ahead and die. Some could be like Thomas today. In this very room, you don't believe enough to pray anymore. You won't risk enough to love anymore. 
You don't care enough to care anymore. That's the kind of doubt that will get you declared dead. Are you in need of a resurrection today? Some, doubt's not the issue, but it is discouragement. We're introduced to Mary in verse 20. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet with him, but Mary stayed in the house. That's how we're introduced to Mary. She wanted to lock the doors and turn out the lights and close the curtains and shut the world out, insulate, isolate, hibernate. Nothing will ever change. This is how I'm going to be forever. That's the voice of discouragement. I'm always going to be alone. I'm always going to be depressed. I'm always going to be stuck in this dead-end job. I'm never going to be blessed with children. I'm never going to have the kind of marriage that I thought I would have. I'm never going to come alive again. To be discouraged is to be dispirited. It's the absence of vitality and energy and life. That's not an easy thing to admit on Easter Sunday morning, dressed in your finest with a smile on your face. But that brief list offered, it describes how, how, how much of your self-talk goes. Those familiar lines or similar ones are on Satan's repeated playlist. And listen, could I tell you this morning, Satan is the author of all discouragements. He wants to demoralize you and depress you and distress you. I've, um, I've heard several takes on this next illustration, this next parable of, of, of sorts. It's told that Satan was going to have a garage sale. If Satan was going to have a garage sale, my son and my wife would be there. They, anybody's garage sale, put up a sign, they're going to be there. They, they love that stuff. But Satan's having a garage sale, and in that particular garage sale, he's going to auction off uh, all of the tools with which he tempts and lies to mankind. And, and some of those tools, they all, had, they all came with a very high price. It included laziness and pride and hate and envy and jealousy, all of these tools that Satan uses. But one tool was not for sale. A sign on that particular tool said so, not for sale. And so one of the patrons asked Satan, well, why is that tool not for sale? And Satan whispered to him, I can't afford to get rid of that tool. It's my chief tool, and it is discouragement. With it, I can pry open any heart, and once inside, I can do anything I want. Maybe I'm speaking to someone this morning who is dead in discouragement, and what you need is a resurrection. We're introduced to Martha. Maybe some of you can relate to Martha today. She was dead in delay. Maybe you can identify with that. You're so frustrated with God who has or who is taking so long to do whatever in your life or in the life of another. You're frustrated by that. We get an indication, we get a hint early on in this story that there's going to be some discomfort, some incongruence because of the way Jesus responds to, to Lazarus's sickness. It seems out of sync with the way we would do things and the way that we would expect Jesus to do them. The first evidence of this occurs in verse 5. As Jesus is informed that his friend uh, Lazarus, whom he dearly loves, that's what it says in verse 5, and I think that's noted intentionally, this one that you dearly love is sick. But then immediately, then in verse 6, uh, John says, although Jesus loved Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. He loved him. And though he did, he didn't go immediately to him. He delayed. And we don't get that. And more than just not getting that, we don't like that. We're opposed to that. It doesn't make sense to us. It seems out of step with love. And then reading on in verse 7, it's like John is saying it for himself, expressing his own disappointment and frustration. And for the rest of us as well who are already thinking it too, he pins finally... Finally, finally, he doesn't say it three times, but I did. Finally, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. And of course, when Jesus finally gets there, Lazarus has been dead and in the tomb for four days. And so again, I'm making the point, John was making the point, he's really, really dead. And because of that reality, all of humanity's cry, 
All of humanity's cry, its frustration just boils out of Martha's mouth. And I don't think she spoke these words softly or meekly or kindly. It was in brokenness and frustration. It was a cry from her heart. Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. Why didn't you come sooner? Why didn't you come? Why didn't you do something? The time had passed. The opportunity was gone. The clock had expired. Dead in delay. Jesus was too late. Maybe you can relate to that. You're a married couple and you've prayed for a baby for many years. Many parents and grandparents continue to pray for their prodigal child. Others plead for physical healing for themselves or for another. Some pray for the healing, the restoration of a relationship. And in each case, whatever your circumstance is, you're waiting. And the disappointment is palpable. The hurt is so very real. The panic is tangible. You're just waiting for the buzzer to go off. It seems inevitable. I wonder, are some in this place, in this room today, caught in those times of delay and it seems like it's leading to death? You need a resurrection. Doubt, discouragement, delay. It's in this story. It's amazing how things so quickly change from death to life. It's Martha who voices these words of faith that turn the story. She speaks to the delay by, uh, by addressing what she interprets as the poor timing of Jesus. And here's what she says. She says, but even now, even though it appears, Jesus, that you're so very late, even though I'm frustrated, even though I'm discouraged, even though we're doubting, Thomas is doubting, Mary's discouraged, I, I'm caught in all this delay, but even now, even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Don't you love that? There's absolutely no limit on the possibilities, no hindrances, no restrictions, no boundaries. Whatever literally means whatever. Of course, I would argue that that's the point of this life-restoring miracle altogether. I mean, what could be bigger than a miracle of bringing a dead person back to life? I would argue absolutely nothing. And so if Jesus can do this, then, and he can, and he did, by the way, then he can do anything. Most of you know how this story culminates. Jesus speaks the command, Lazarus, come out, and he does alive and free. What an opening act. Lazarus' resurrection, it was the precursor to that of Jesus. He, he foreshadowed what would happen to Jesus himself, the one who declared, I am the resurrection and the life had in fact come back to life. But do you know what else? Lazarus' resurrection, points, it, it points to our resurrection too. That story, that story of Lazarus' resurrection, it was ripe with death. Lazarus's death for sure, but also the death of these others, of Thomas and Mary and Martha. They were dead in doubt and discouragement and delay. And that's exactly where some of us are. And if that describes you today, then you need an even now moment. You need to believe upon Jesus Christ who said, I am the resurrection and the life. If you were part of the Good Friday service, then you were with us when we had those envelopes and it spoke of some of these D words that are describing where we are. Some are caught in that place of denial. You continue to blame others for all the things that are going on in your life. You haven't come to that place of admittance that you need a Savior, Jesus Christ, that you take responsibility for where you are. You need to stop denying the truth and walk into the truth and the grace of God that He is laying out before you. Some are in your place of doubting, right? You're in this place of doubting. And some, some are wondering if they can even ask God any questions. Listen, you can ask God any question. He will receive you. He will give audience to you that He might speak into your life. And He will meet you in that place with faith. He will, he will enliven your faith. And even now, some of you are discouraged in this place this morning. And you need to be revitalized in your life. You need to be couraged in Christ. You need to receive His encouragement and His peace. Some of you, some of you are wondering, when in the world is God going to work? And you, you're really wondering, is God at work at all? I, I can assure you with the words of Jesus Christ, He said, my Father is always at work, and I am too. We may not always see how God is at work, but God is always at work in our circumstance, and He can reset the clock. 
He will give you hope going forward. And some of you are dead in your sin today. You've not asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. This is your salvation day. You can believe upon the one who gave his life for you on the cross, that same one who was, who was dead and buried, resurrected on the third day, and he is saying the same resurrection power that allowed me to rise from the grave in this, is the same resurrection power I want to give into your life. He has come that he might give you life and to give you life abundantly. Jesus said, I am the resurrection, I am the life. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Anything, everything dead in you can be resurrected today. This is the good news of Easter. And so I say, he is risen, and you say, he is risen indeed. I'm going to give us two more chances. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And proclaim it again. He is risen. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you meet us in our discouragement, in our doubt. You are there in our, our moments of delay. You're there when we continue to deny you. And certainly, we recognize that you are there when we, we come to you acknowledging our spiritual death, death in our sin. And, and you meet us in those moments each and every time with your resurrection power. And so we applaud your faithfulness today we give you thanks for your great love for us that called each of us into a saving relationship with you some have answered that call and some have not yet answered that call in these moments would they hear your voice again would they hear your spirit speaking calling them into relationship with you you offer the best life the best life possible doesn't mean that we don't have difficulty not what I'm suggesting at all but you are with us and you are faithful to walk with us all through life you're enough for us your grace sustains us you give us a hope and a peace that this world doesn't understand and cannot afford so we thank you may your voice continue to speak your Holy Spirit calling each of us unto yourself and may each of us respond with a yes to you this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Welcome back to the studio. I'm in the studio tonight with uh, Greg Beheller. Greg, it's nice to have you back with us this hey, week. Pastor Paul, good to be back. And uh, and and our, our silent partner in the room tonight is Nathaniel. Nathaniel's running sound for us and, and mixing us. So if we sound bad, it's his fault. <laughs> um, but we are uh, we're glad you're here to listen to us, everybody who's out there. We're going to be talking today about, of course, the sermon that you may have just heard, or maybe you heard it on Sunday, that our Easter Sunday message, Jesus, the Resurrection, and the Life. Um, this is sort of the culmination of our Names of Jesus series that, that Kent has been uh, working on um, and bringing to us. And a, a little bit of a spoiler, this coming Sunday, there's not a, a regular message from Pastor Kent. It's, it's our Faith Promise Sunday. We'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But um, we've had the Names of God series... We've had the Names of Jesus series. Guess what's coming up next? Names of the Holy Spirit. So we're, we're, nice. we're moving into a slightly different phase of the sermon series. Excited about that. Um, but this was great just to, to be in Easter. We had wonderful Easter services here. Our choir sang in the first service. Our, our, our fuel band played in both services. The worship was just really, really you amazing. Know, let me add this, too. It, was, it is so... Um awesome to for the band to be with the choir that big sound vocally yeah. was just um you know it was just times hard to keep it together just to hear the, the the choir behind us really you know filling that space and it was just really um very enjoyable and it was it was wonderful yeah. as a congregant on Sunday. Somebody was just sitting out in the in the crowd worshiping as the band led, as the choir led. It was just wonderful. So for those of you listening, if you haven't, if you weren't able to be here and you haven't had a chance to go back and watch that portion of the service, uh, it should be available on our Facebook and on our, our YouTube. Um, it's well worth going back and, and watching. We have some really talented people and we're grateful that they use their talents to lead us in worship and really set the stage for 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 the, the message and just to bring us into the presence of God and get our hearts ready to listen. Well, and Paul, let's, let's not um, look past Tenebrae service. And I just want to say 
wow, what a service. And I know right after that was over with, I texted you and said, Paul, did, did you write this? <laughs> and you said, yes. And I have to tell you, it's probably one of the most uh, amazing, moving Tenebrae services. You know, your acting, really everyone involved in it just did such an amazing well, job. It's such a great service that, that um, just did a masterful job of setting the table for what is what occurred on Sunday. And well, so anyway, just that. from me to you, and I'm sure from the congregation, just great job to you and everyone else who, who worked really hard to put together an amazing service. Well, I really, really appreciate that. And that service is also available on our Facebook and YouTube. Although the music, we used pre-recorded music in that and the songs have been muted, but you can go back and watch the, the monologues um, that tied in with some of those concepts. And uh, yeah, it's the the people who were who delivered those monologues, um, mm. Kelly and Alex and Justin and Kyle, um, and I, I did the first one. But the just to sit and listen to those other four do those, where it was just really really meaningful. And um, so anyway, those that service is available. And Kyle came up with the the concept to tie in with with Pastor Kent's message um, on Easter Sunday. So we sort of backed up from that and talked about the Lazarus story, which. Again, as as Kent started out, he said, "You know, you you may be here today expecting to hear about the resurrection of Jesus, but um, I, I saw a cartoon, a guy shaking the hand of the pastor at, as he was leaving Easter service. He said, 'You're in a rut, pastor. Every time I come, you preach about the resurrection.' <laughs> um, of course, he's one of those people who only comes on Easter, so of course. But um, we we did have a message on resurrection. It just was sort of that opening act, like like Kent talked about. So I, I liked that that framing of of Jesus' resurrection." in light of Lazarus' resurrection. That was a cool concept. Yeah, totally. A lot of similarities um, and a great sermon on Easter Sunday. You know, again, um, maybe not the story we were all expecting, but certainly, um, you know, all the points that Pastor Kent brought forth really, uh, and and really aligning itself with the Tenebrae service just resonated with me. And, you know, I think we were talking a little bit beforehand. I mean, all those points and all those D words resonated with me, and I could find myself in that whole story, really. And Yeah. you know, just, just a, a ma- again, a masterful job of tying all that together. Well, I, I really appreciated the way Kent approached those things the, um, and how he tied it all in with what Jesus, the, the big line from this story of Lazarus, where he, he says, I am the resurrection mm-hmm. and the life. Um, so it's not just about coming out of death. I mean, right. it's not just about life as the opposite of death. It is Jesus is life. And elsewhere in scripture, he says, you know, I've come that you may have life and, and life more abundant. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is more than just uh, just breathing and moving right. around. It's it's a fulfillment. It's it's a it's a spiritual life. It's a it's a fulfilling life, and that's that's what uh, I, I I wonder. I wish we had more information scripturally about what Lazarus' life was like after the after his resurrection. What what do you do with Act Two in that case? <laughs> well, you've got a great story to tell. That's for sure. You're probably the life of the party, right? You do. Where you go? Tell me about this. What happened, right? <laughs> you won't believe this, but right. Well, and you do hear about people who have near death experiences now, right. and they they sometimes will say, you know, I feel like I feel like I have I must this must have happened for a reason. This must have happened for a purpose. We know that part of Lazarus, the purpose in that was for. To, that Jesus received this glory, that people see what mm-hmm. he was capable of. But um, while Lazarus, certainly there there was probably a reason. And so uh, that, that's fun to ponder, fun yeah, to think is. about um, what what did he do with his, with his resurrected life. And then, too, what do you think it was like for him in that day when he saw Jesus die uh, or heard about it? We don't know that he was there. Um, but when he heard about this and then hears that Jesus... I mean, do you think he suspected more than anybody else that this might not be the end for Jesus? <laughs> well, I mean, I think he certainly had the experience to, to at least ponder that, right? I right. mean, to, to say that, you know, this may not be it. That, you right. know, certainly he was capable of resurrecting my life. And, right. You know, so he's definitely... Yeah, that's an interesting question about... Yeah, like, think What's about. he really thinking of on those days, you know, especially on Saturday, maybe, like... Right, there was a delay right. there, much like his, and is he thinking... Here in a couple right. of days, this is going to be different. Well, and it, um, 
you know, the Holy Week podcasts that we put out um, on Saturday, I used a devotional from John Ortberg. Uh, it wasn't something I wrote. It was something that he wrote. And um, there was a thought in there, uh, sort of this uh, talking about three-day stories, that there's this mm-hmm. history of, there's this sort of tradition of three-day stories in the Bible. and um, But in Lazarus' case, what we have is a four-day story. Right. And so, and Kent made that point, you know, this was... Um, he was truly, truly dead. Um, not just what's the Wizard of Oz song? Not just merely dead, but right. really quite sincerely <laughs> dead. You know, uh, well, what, did, yeah. Didn't he make the, the point that on the fourth day that there was some is it some custom or some belief that the spirit had the spirit leaves had le- at that left point, the body, yeah. and so it was truly right. You know, dead beyond all hope at that point. Right. And and I, I love that that concept too. That that Jesus sometimes comes in when we really think it's beyond all hope. I mean, it's great when he doesn't, when he comes before that, right. you know, when he doesn't wait that long, but that hope is never lost, that yeah. uh, that the ending is never what we think it's going to be. So, yeah, the waiting's tough. Yeah. The waiting can be tough, and I think, you know, Pastor Kenny talks about that, and, and delay, talking about delay, and, you know, the waiting is tough, and that's when we really have to, you know, exercise our faith and look at the promises and look at the experiences we've had with with Jesus and and um, all those really call us to look at our relationship and our our experiences with Jesus, what His Word tells us, what His promises have, have right. told us, and um, we get to exercise our faith, right? And um, right. I think in all those in all the different topics that Pastor Kent discussed there, I think um, experienced some of all those, and those are all have all been times where. Um, it has been challenging and tough, but those are times where my faith has actually grown. And so right. those are tough and, you know, delay or doubt or death or discouragement. All those are, you know, none of those are, are, are fun when we're going through them. And sometimes right. those last longer than we want them to. But those are all opportunities for us as Christians to exercise our faith, look at, to get into God's word, look at his promises to, you know, to us and look at our past experiences and see how God has proven true and how he's been faithful and, and then exercise it, right? Then, right. As he, you know, Pastor Kent said, we're going to sit in the pew, right? We're going to actually put our faith into action. And, and, right. And so, yeah, that's that's the that's the takeaway for me in all these, really, is that these are opportunities for us to really exercise Agreed. our faith and grow as Agreed. Christians. And if we don't go through these things, then how do we how do we grow? Right. Right. We 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 become sharper through those experiences, and and it does. I like I like the word you use. It gives a chance to exercise those things. Yeah. Um, it's like with our physical muscles, you don't, you don't gain strength without resistance. And so, um, you know, doubt is that resistance that helps us build our faith and yeah. discouragement is, you know, all, all that is it, those. Yeah. When we push against those things, mm-hmm. we become stronger spiritually. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> but that brings us to those points that he made. Uh, Thomas, uh, was dead in his doubts. <clears throat> I love that he brought up the point that, um, sometimes in, in church, uh, in church cultures, especially, mm-hmm. I think we, we do get taught the doubt in itself is a sin. Um, and I, I, I don't believe that. I think God mm-hmm. is not afraid of our doubts. God is not afraid of our questioning. Yeah. Um, I think again, those things, they can serve a purpose, but they're also part of the human experience. Um, for us, if anybody says they've never doubted, I don't think they're being truthful. Right. I love what Pastor Kent said. He said, listen, doubting, um, asking questions, seeking reasons for belief, weighing the evidence isn't necessarily bad. In fact, I believe it's necess- It's a necessary ingredient of faith. Right. That right? That God's big enough to take our tough questions, and we he's not asking for blind faith. Right. You know, he's, right, he, he, can, he can take the tough questions when we have doubts. You know, I, I've certainly had times in my life where uh, my faith has been small. Right. And um, it's... And there have been some tough questions that I've that I've heaped upon, you know, his shoulders. And right. um, that's again when we have to go back to the to his word, his promises, and and, um, and realize what he's done for us already. Right. And and lean on those. And right. Yeah. And I, I think too that doubt can, if if it's if it if we treat it honestly, if we're not if we don't live in fear of it, but if our, if we use our doubt to allow us to reexamine, like you're right. talking about, if, if we use it as a springboard, um, to really drive us into, um, 
It, it can also be part of, you know, wait a minute, God, is what I'm hearing really from you? I mean, that's not that different from doubt. We hear his voice maybe really clearly right. and we're like, okay, I want to explore this. And sometimes it may not be his voice. And so I think we have to, uh, you know, it's part of you know, testing, testing right. the spirit, as the Bible says sometimes, is a very near cousin of doubt. And so those are the things mm-hmm. that can help us really grow in our faith. Well, and he mentioned, too, there's an engaged doubt, right, which is, you know, that we're asking these questions in order that we might be able to understand better, right? right. And then there's the determined doubt, which is my mind's never going to be changed. And right. making that distinction between those two and, between those two and um, you know, making sure we are, aware, we are aware of those and self-aware of those kind of right. different kinds of doubt. And we certainly don't want to be the determined doubt, right? Where, right. That very easily can turn into cynicism where we doubt everything right. initially without, and, and we lose out if we do that as well. So yeah, it is, uh, it, it, yeah, that we can be overcome by doubt, but we need to be careful not to be. Right. It's okay to, to, you know, to engage with it, like yeah. Pastor Kent was talking well, about and you just brought up. And I think that's the importance of asking the questions, you know, of, when you have doubt, then that's when you need to ask the questions, right? If you sit on it, yeah, and then it can become that determined doubt where you just never get an answer about it, and you just say, "Well, it's you know," right? You just give up, right? You just stop so, seeking. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's important. Yeah. So, and I like how he sort of wrapped up that point. He said, "You know, you uh, some could be like Thomas today. You don't believe enough to pray anymore. You won't risk enough to love right. anymore. You don't care enough to care anymore." And then he said, "That's the kind of doubt that gets you declared dead. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's where you need a resurrection, which we talked about with Lazarus." Um, of course, then he moved on to talking about discouragement, and um, I'm sure there's not a soul listening to this or that was listening on Sunday that hasn't dealt with discouragement. Yeah. Um, that's that's just, uh, and it seems like, and this is probably not the case, but certainly we always live more where we are right now. It seems like this is there's just been a, a an epidemic of discouragement right. in the past couple of years. Well, if you you know if you. I mean, I really like uh, Pastor Kent's analogy there, too, about the yard sale and, and the one item that wasn't for sale, and that was his chief tool, right? Discouragement, right. because, you know, he, I love that, just the, the word picture that that created. If, you know, discouragement prized the, 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 just the heart open just enough that I can get kind of under that door, and once I'm inside there, I can do anything. And, right. you know, again, we've all been discouraged either by our own thoughts or by maybe something that someone else has said, and we know how destructive it can be. And so, you know... Um, just how dangerous yeah. uh, discouragement can really be. Yeah, and and that that speaks to uh, that speaks to the importance of uh, of having a, a faith family mm. with you. Um, I certainly think over the years, the times that I was really in danger of letting discouragement, you know, as the the, the garage sale story where right. Satan was really going to pry pry my heart open and get in there and start messing things up. Um, it was relationships with God's people that really helped yeah. me in those ways. Um, I, I've, I think I've probably told this story. I'm not sure if I've told it on here, but when I lived in California for a few years as a youth pastor, my first couple or three months there were extremely difficult to the point that I wasn't sure I was going to make it. I, I thought, I, I'm just going to have to resign and move back to where I know people because I just culturally it was a shock. Right. Wonderful people and ultimately made some really great friendships there and, and I missed them and I, I liked the place. But um, those first three months, Satan was really working on me and I was super discouraged. And I, I came out, of, oh, it was a Sunday morning, we had three services out there and between the first service and the second service, I was heading into the sanctuary and we had a... the. We were right on the central coast. The weather was great. We had this little outdoor greeting booth. And uh, so I walked over to speak to the lady who was greeting at that time. And uh, she she said um, she had been in first service and then gone to her greeting post. And she said, Paul, um, God gave me this for you. And I'd never, I'd, this woman knew nothing I was dealing with. I had not ever really even had a conversation with her except to speak with her briefly on Sunday mornings. And she said, I don't know what it means, but you, maybe you will. And she hand, handed me a little torn off uh, corner of her of her bulletin, and it said it had a scripture reference, and I, I don't remember exactly what the scripture reference is. I've got this in a in a, an encouragement box I have at home, mm. um, but right below the scripture reference, she had written, "You belong here," and God yeah. used her. I mean, he, she didn't know what I was going through, but He did. And had I not had somebody to encourage me, even in the smallest of ways. I don't know. I don't know. I don't yeah. know that I would have 
stayed there and had the ultimately very fulfilling ministry that I that I had there. Well, I mean, I, I think that speaks to our role as Christians um, a little bit, Paul. I and mean, we are to encourage people. Right. I, I think about a time, and just briefly, where you know I had really stopped coming to church and fallen away from church, and, and I was discouraged. I really was. And it, had it not been for some encouraging words, and it just so happens it was an encouraging word from uh, my future father-in-law, you know, that I was working at Kroger's, I was going to school and college, and, you know, he just came by and came in my and actually spoke to me. I don't, I don't remember the words, but I remember that it was something like that that, right. that encouraged me, um, and it, 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 it made a difference. Right. And um, I don't know, I think that as, as Christians, then we have a role to be that, right? So we do. We've all been discouraged, and... Um, it doesn't mean we have the answers for someone's discouragement, but I think that we can encourage people. Right. We, I think, um, can be people who can give hope to other people with, with simple words of just kindness. And Absolutely. I think, you know, your your story and my story just to me underscores just how um, how important a, a right. very simple gesture can make in someone's life. It's very convicting for me. I mean, how many times have I thought, oh, I should text that person or I should give yeah. them a phone call? And, and I don't do it. And, um, and that, that's convicting to think I, I missed an opportunity to be an encourager. Um, so yeah, that, so that's a question for all of us. What is it we can do right now today to encourage someone and make that part of our, part of our everyday routine? Um, and then uh, he moved on to his last point, the last of the three characters uh, that he talked about, Martha, dead in delay. Um, and this is another thing that's super relatable. Um, and again, maybe even more so in this time in history where we've all been sort of uh, living a different life for the last couple right. of years with the pandemic and like, how long is it going to go on? When, you know, when can we move past this? God, when is something else going to happen? Um and uh, it's okay to feel those things. Uh, so often we, uh, you know, back with the same thing as doubt. It's it's okay to be frustrated. Um, that's not that's not a sin in itself. What we right. do with those feelings right. can can end up separating us from God. But Martha went to God with her frustration. She went right to Jesus and said, "I don't I don't understand this." Uh, and that's that's okay. Yeah, he can take that. Yeah, I had some, when I was just reading over that again, I wrote down these things. I'm waiting, I'm praying, I'm fasting, <laughs> I'm listening, crickets. Right. right. <laughs> you know, I think there's been times when, um, in my life, certainly when my timetable for what I want God to do in my life right. is different than his. And it's been a point of frustration at times and even sadness, you know, um, and, um, but I, you know, I, I recall thinking about, um, all the stories in the Bible where things didn't always happen in the timing that, that that right. person wanted, you know, thinking about, um, maybe Sarah and having, you know, having, right. you know, just, that was a long time. She yeah. was 75 when she got the word and then how much, uh, how many yeah, years did she have to wait? To, yeah. A couple of decades. <laughs> right. So, you know, you think about those, but all those promises fulfilled. Right. You know, and so it, those are the kind of things, I guess, you know, but I think we've all been in that spot where we just feel like we're, you know, we're doing everything right, God, and why isn't this yeah, being answered? And, right. you know, truth be known, in hindsight, sometimes we, you know, maybe I'm glad we didn't get the answer that we had right. thought. Uh, but right. um, certainly delay can be one of those things that can, can stop you cold in your tracks and your spiritual, and your spiritual life can yeah. stop you. I mean, there's things we pray for that in earnest and um, that, are, that are really important to us, you know, health and sickness for someone or, or law, you know, all those things, financially, whatever need it is. And sometimes it just doesn't happen as quick as we'd like. And um, sometimes that can be a real root of right. despair and, and just kind of stop us. And so you know, what a great, right. great warning. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, the, the point he made in that, and he said in this story, it's amazing how quickly things change. Um, right. We can wait and wait and wait. And then all of a sudden, Oh, this is not what I was expecting, you know. And, and truthfully, Mary and Martha they were they were hoping for a healing, 
Right. And they got a resurrection. That's that's a whole right. lot better. You know, would Lazarus have preferred not to go through when he went through? Sure. And like right. like there are all sorts of things we go through, but the ultimate results uh, lead us to a place where we get something even more miraculous yeah. and even greater than what we expected or were hoping for. The whatever he talked about, right? Right. The whatever. Whatever, yeah. whatever is whatever, right? Could be anything. No. No hindrances, no restrictions, no boundaries. And then, of course, he wrapped it up with that, that same scripture in John eleven twenty two. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. There's no limit, the whatever. Right. Um, and, and then Kent said, you know, we need an even now moment. And, and so I think there's probably a lot of you listening right now that, that have an, are in need of an even now moment. And um, so uh, even though we don't know what your need might be, we'll be praying with you on that. And, uh, and Greg, I can say that for you. Whatever your even now moment is, uh, I'll be praying for you, Nathaniel. Um, the, those yeah. even now moments, the, they're still out there. Absolutely, yeah. Miracles are happening every day. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes we can get overwhelmed with the barrage of all that's negative in the news, but you know, we serve a risen Savior. We're reminded of that uh, right. this week. Um, because of Him, we have life, right? Yeah. Not just breathing, but you know, abundant life and right. a life that's fulfilling. And so, and rest on that this week. Meditate on that, right. and and uh, live in that. Yeah, yeah. What's what's the the phrase that's been around a few years? He didn't come to make bad people good. He made he came to make dead people alive. There you go. And so, uh, where whatever areas in your life you're you're dead in today, there is there is hope and there is life. Well, that's going to do it for our discussion of the sermon. This coming Sunday, as I mentioned, we have our Faith Promise service um, with Reverend Dwayne Mills, who's with a ministry called Appalachia Reach Out. Faith Promise is a great Sunday um, every year. It, it allows us to focus on the work of God around the world and how we can contribute to that, um, not just financially, but prayerfully and, and through our own involvement. And so those, that'll be in both services this Sunday, 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Um, then I, we haven't talked about Celebrate Recovery in a while, but if these are areas that you're, you're discouraged and you're, you're facing delay and you're, you're just lost in your doubt, Celebrate Recovery is a great place for you. It is for anybody who has hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And we meet every Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for large group worship, and then we break off into uh, open share small groups at 7. Um, we, have, we have sandwiches and chips at like 5, 5 o'clock, 530. Um, it is for you. It's not just for people dealing with addiction. It is for people dealing with any sort of hurt, any sort of habit, or any sort of hang-up. Um, so join us this uh, this Sunday and any Sunday at 6 p.m. We really hope to see you here at South Charleston First Church soon. In the meanwhile, thanks for being part of the family.